Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we're recording this episode as a celebration of International Women's Day. Huzzah! It happens every March 8th. Uh-huh. Although I kind of feel like International Women's Day and Valentine's Day should just be folded into the same February 13th celebration. As long as it is still like really cool and pro-lady and pro-awesome ladies, as opposed to what Women's Day in Russia has become, Oof. which it had such great, strong political roots in Russia. And now Women's Day is like this weird Valentine's Mother's Day saccharine hybrid where and you're like, what's wrong with that? At least I get candy. It's like, yeah, you get candy and flowers, but it's in celebration of um, like how sweet and sexy a lady is not necessarily like go women. Yeah. Uh, there was a really awkward photo that I found of uh, Vladimir Putin handing bouquets of tulips to a group of Russian women. And he was almost smiling, <laughs> but it just did, did not look like a very celebratory affair. Putin only smiles when he's riding bears shirtless in the wilderness. Exactly. Um, but the looks on the women's faces said to me, like, well, <laughs> here's this year's bouquet. <laughs> all right. This is all I'm getting. Well, I mean, there was I forget where I was reading the article. It might have been in the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, one of those really important newspapers that I regularly <laughs> read. Um, but Are you name dropping papers? Absolutely. <laughs> J School Nerd Alert. But the reporter was talking to younger women in Russia who are so over International Women's Day because they're like, we, we would just prefer maybe more rights, uh, higher wages rather than flowers once a year. Yeah, I like one idea in that article that was quoted of how to celebrate Women's Day in Russia was like, you know, just flowers and coffee won't do, guys. You know, maybe go on a car race with your lady. But there is a dilemma when it comes to whether she should be the driver or the navigator. Yikes. Yeah. Okay, so International Women's Day in Russia, not so rad. (laughs) Yet. Yet, yeah. Because... We're going to talk to you about the secret history of International Women's Day and how it came about in the United States and why it is about so much more than just posting uh, Instagram photos of rad ladies. I mean, of course, we'll probably post like some notorious RBG photos, things like that. But it's about so much more than just, oh, oh, women, (laughs) you know, polite applause, because the labor history behind it is, I mean... A, something that we don't hear about very often, and B, something that does deserve our recognition. Right, because labor feminists, so to speak, have really led the way in this country for establishing the fight for rights and and at one time for suffrage. Yeah, and in fact, International Women's Day was inspired by female factory workers going on strike. And like we said, it's definitely worth taking a look at how all of that went down. And we're focusing on the United States. I know we were just talking about Russia for a few minutes. We're coming back to the United States, um, partially to fill in this huge gap in our history of labor organizing that we rarely hear about. And uh, this info we're about to cover is coming from articles 
from In These Times and Urbana Champaign Independent Media Center. So when it comes to striking, people have walked off their jobs in protest since the medieval period. We've always <laughs> been fed up with our horrible bosses and walked out. But in terms of the organized strikes, as we think of them today, those didn't really start until the early 19th century. And you know who led the way, Caroline? Women textile workers. I didn't even wait for you to answer. I was so excited. I opened my mouth and then, yes. And, but of course it was called turning out at the time. They weren't striking. They were turning out, which I like that. It's like you're you're turning out in support of, you know, like getting paid. Yeah. I feel like there's like a a little dance move that would go along with that. You know, do the turnout. Yeah. A little hip swivel and sachet away. Yes. Uh, so in 1824, uh, you get America's first textile mill, Slater Mill, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which, by the way, is now a museum if you'd like to visit, which absolutely I would. Never been to Rhode Island before. Um, anyway, Slater Mill was the site of the first factory organized strike in the United States, and it was initiated by Kristen. A bunch of angry women. True story. Uh, it was also the first strike of any kind involving women. And originally, uh, which is uh, horrifying, the mill owners hired children to run the looms. But a bunch of new mechanization technology demanded that you get a more skilled labor force, but they still had to be cheap. So who's maybe a little taller, but also as cheap as children at this time? A bunch of angry women. Yeah, Again. exactly. So they bring these ladies in and the owners assumed uh, women are really just tall children. So they'll be very easy to control. Yeah, we're not even being sarcastic listeners. A number of the sources <laughs> we were reading about Slater Mill and this historic strike emphasized how the mill owners and managers were just so perplexed <laughs> when the women, you know, revolted because they're like, what? But they, we thought, oh, man, <laughs> you're supposed to be just tall children. Um, and so uh, they were wrong. They were wrong. And 102 women between the ages of 15 and 30 abandoned their textile looms to protest a 25 percent wage cut. And they went on strike and they won back a majority of their wage. And this inspired future strikes around New England, including strikes organized by those famous Lowell girls. Yeah, we could do an entire podcast on the Lowell girls. And I checked and stuff you missed in history class has not devoted a podcast to the Lowell girls that I know of. I could be mistaken, um, but we should probably suggest it to Tracy and Holly. But we're still going to talk about him for a little bit because this provides such important context to the environment leading up to International Women's Day, the founding of it. So in the 1820s, Lowell, Massachusetts is incorporated as a planned town for textile manufacturing, which to me sounds a lot like today's mixed use developments, only without, you know, like TJ Maxx's and <laughs> any amenities. And OK, it's not like that at all. It's, it's kind of horrible. <laughs> um, but over the next couple decades, Lowell employed 8000 mill operatives, as they called them, and they were mostly like at Slater Mill, they were mostly women and kids who would come in from farming families in rural New England. And this employment, of course, offered a new kind of freedom, particularly for the women. It got them out of their house. 
But it also stoked, you know, public fears about upending gender roles and family values. And some even considered it unvirtuous to be a factory girl. Yeah, this is definitely echoes and shades of what we talked about in our babysitting episode about the, the advent of the teenager and how immediately there were fears about what she was doing and who she was doing it with. I mean, seriously, it's like, let's get some cheap labor in here and let's pay them. But then we're going to be awfully scared about what they're going to do with that money. Exactly, because uh, wantonness looms at the textile mills. Uh, I couldn't resist. I'm, so, I'm actually really sorry for that. <laughs> but I mean, it's not like they weren't unsupervised. All of these Lowell Mill operatives lived in factory-owned boarding houses, but the room and board also came out of their paychecks. Yeah, so for a sample work week for a Lowell girl, you'd work about... 80 hours a week. No and and at one point, so the, the workday used to start at 7 a.m. They would wake up and have breakfast and then start working. But then this real genius of a guy rolls into the mill and he's like, you know what we've noticed? Those women work so well just right when they wake up. So let's start the workday at 5 and then we'll give them a little bit of a breakfast break and they can get back to work at 7 so they work for 80 hours a week and they make a whopping $3 of which a dollar 25 goes right back to Lowell to pay for their room and board. Yeah, so things aren't glowing by any means. And when textile competition starts to step up and commodity prices drop, Lowell ends up cutting wages. And as you might imagine, all of those ladies were none too pleased. Yeah, and, and apparently, as some sources have noted, the Lowell girls were already considered kind of rabble rousers. I mean, the fact that they were working outside the home and they gave the owners a lot of guff. Um, but, I mean, this is such a crucial point in our American labor history because in 1834, the Lowell girls strike to protest. Um, but the company quickly cracks down. But still, it's significant. You have 800 of their workers, which was about a sixth of the mill force going on strike. And to also drive home the significance of this and the gender politics of the day, there was a mill worker named Harriet Hansen Robinson who was there, and she wrote about the incident later. And she recalled a female co-worker hopping up on a stump and delivering this impromptu pro-strike speech, probably doing her little turnout sashay away uh, move. And Robinson said this was the first time a woman had spoken in public in Lowell. And it echoes similar kinds of milestones like that with the temperance movement and the abolition movement and suffrage, where you have this social consciousness raising among and within groups of women, inspiring them to speak out publicly for the very first time. Yeah, and not only did you have that one woman sashaying on the stump, but women marched through town, they made speeches, they passed resolutions within their group, and, of course, held meetings, which is so dangerous, women holding meetings. But apparently, those kinds of activities, aside from maybe making speeches, that does seem a little radical, but them parading through town and meeting among themselves was still considered female appropriate. It, they weren't pushing their boundaries too far. But I got to say, um, as a 21st century reader of, because um, there was a lot of writing about this, their rhetoric was very independence heavy. You know, they called themselves daughters of freedom. 
which, okay, but it was also very slave heavy where they continually compared their working conditions to slavery and were mm-hmm. like, how dare you United States enslave us in these working conditions, which is a little bit awkward because this is in 1834 and America is still like mm, almost 30 years away from legally abolishing actual slavery. Yeah, that's a little, um, that is a little icky. Yeah, but I mean, like, for the con- for the times, it made sense. They were trying to essentially spin their patriotic womanhood mm-hmm. into something to get them better working conditions. Yeah, well, so two years later, we get the second strike, and things really intensify at this point. And while the textile economy itself was fine... Lowell still raised the room and board costs for women, and the Lowell Mill girls are like, I don't think so, buddy. No way. This time, 25% of the workforce, which was between 1,500 and 2,000 participants, went on strike. And the mills ran below capacity for months, even though, I mean, they ended up, you know, the company ended up negotiating with them. Um, they still felt the impact of that strike. And the women also formed the Factory Girls Association. So these are the first seeds you see of female-led union organizing. And scholars have said that this signaled what they called a new consciousness among these working-class women who were really trying to combine the domestic values that they were raised with in an urbanized setting to temper all of those fears and criticisms of them as being unvirtuous women who are just upending gender roles. And this action would lay the foundation for what was called the 10 hour movement. Mm, Yeah. Cutting back on those. What was it? 82 hour weeks. Yeah. Something crazy. So by 1844, all of those little operatives They've continued to wise up, they've continued to get mad, and they are continuing to get political. And they form the Lowell Female Labor Reform Association, which is the first union of American working women that focused on winning that 10-hour workday. And this group gets credit for initiating some of the earliest reforms in the textile industry's working conditions. And as a piece over at the AFL-CIO notes that since women couldn't vote at the time, the Lowell Female Labor Reform Association was focused on petition campaigns. They were like, okay, we can get all these signatures and then we'll take it to the Massachusetts state legislature and get them to legally cap the workday at 10 hours. So they did that. They were collecting signatures. They were organizing other chapters, union chapters at other mills. They started publishing what they called factory tracks to expose mill conditions. And they were also actively testifying before state legislators. So you have to see how determined these women were Mm -hmm. to work within the constraints that they had, both economically and politically. And we're still intent on saying, nope, we're we're going to make this happen. Yeah, there was a lot of lady power going on. Uh, there was one Lowell Mill girl writing about this who said they have at least learned the lesson which a bitter experience teaches, not to those who style themselves their natural protectors or they to look for the needful help, but to the strong and resolute of their own sex. So, like, don't depend on these men who are running the mills or even the men who are running the government. You have to help yourself. 
So listeners are probably wondering at this point, what happened to International Women's Day? Well, friends, don't worry, because we're about to stitch it all together when we come right back from a quick break. So this is where the podcast takes a little bit of a conspiratorial turn. And I've been so excited to talk to you about this, Caroline, because talk about some podcast research really throwing a curveball at us. Because here's the thing. Allegedly, International Women's Day was inspired by a strike on March 8th, 1857. That was, you know, continuing in this tradition that women were developing of organizing, going on strike. Um, these were supposedly women garment workers in New York City who marched and picketed, demanding improved working conditions. Again, the 10-hour workday and equal rights for women. And police responded with brutality, clubbing them, allegedly. Yes, and then, allegedly, on March 8, 1908, apparently, supposedly, allegedly, the needle trades ladies in New York marched again, honoring the 1857 march, again demanding the vote and an end to sweatshops and child labor. This all sounds really good. This all sounds like a great foundation for International Women's Day. Yeah, of course we should recognize those those two strikes that may or may not have happened. Um, but if we pull back for a minute, especially if we look at 1908, when that second strike allegedly, maybe supposedly happened, by this time, post-Civil War, we have women, and especially widows, flooding the job market like never before. But when they arrive looking for jobs, unions are largely uninterested in representing them. So like that Lowell Mill girl recommended, don't depend on the dudes, turn to your lady friends. So they began forming their own organizations and initiatives. And this is also the time when you have working class women's labor demands intersecting with the work of suffragists and progressive era feminists like Jane Addams, Florence Kelly and Rose Snyderman. And speaking of stuff you missed in history class a little while back, they do have an episode, I know, on Jane Addams. And in 1869, you get the publication of Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill, which is possibly jointly written with his wife, Harriet Taylor Mill which helps launch an argument for gender equality. So it's really kind of infiltrating popular discourse. And in 1889, the International Socialist Congress accepted the principle of women's right to work and equal pay. And you might be like, oh, why, why are they mentioning socialists all of a sudden? <laughs> Don't worry. It'll make sense in a second. And in 1903, the Women's Trade Union League was formed. So we see more and more and more organizing happening among these women. And that brings us to 1909, which is a pivotal year in the history of International Women's Day, because on February 28th, the Socialist Party in the United States celebrates the first National Women's Day in New York, allegedly to honor those two strikes, the one that happened in 1857 and then in 1908. Yeah, so they didn't have the Google to be able to verify whether those strikes had indeed happened. Exactly. Mm, we are sounding very like we're, we're teasing a lot of information here. Uh, and then in November of that year, November 1909, you get the International Ladies Garment Workers Union that teams up with the National Women's Trade Union League. And they launch the first long term general strike by women. 
And this was a strike, a turning out against Leeserson and Company and the Triangle Waste Company, two of the, quote, most notorious shops in New York. And for listeners in New York, the Lower East Side was where all of this stuff was happening. That was the factory hub. And shirtwaist workers were among the worst paid. And uh, shirtwaist, for anyone who didn't know, like me, what exactly that was, I was thinking, like, is that a cummerbund or what? <laughs> it's just another name for a blouse. It was like a super popular type of blouse, women's blouse at the time. So these workers, though, were among the worst paid and were mostly Eastern European Jewish immigrants. So this is a group of people who don't have a ton of political leverage, but they're organizing through these unions to form what's nicknamed the Uprising of 20,000. And it started out as just that joint effort by the women's unions. But then it became a general strike after a woman named Clara Lemlick asked to be heard in a Cooper Union meeting. They were discussing, like, okay, what are we going to do? They've got this shirtwaist strike. How do we feel about this? A couple of guys got up and gave some lackluster speeches, and they were like, oh, okay. (laughs) So Lemlick gets up, and speaking in Yiddish, she declared, I am tired of listening to speakers who talk in general terms. What we are here for is to decide whether we shall or shall not strike. I offer a resolution that a general strike be declared now. And she fired that crowd up so much that they determined then and there to join the strike. Yeah. And they I mean, they took an oath. It was all sorts of excitement going on. So much excitement that uh, there were several men at the time who said that the 13-week-long strike was a strike against God. And one of my favorite things was what George Bernard Shaw wrote upon reading this. He said, delightful, medieval America, always an intimate personal confidence of the Almighty. And I love that because it almost sounds modern, the way that men, so many men, hashtag not all men, uh tend to frame a lot of women's activism in general, that it's like against your place as a woman. Against nature. Against, yeah. Well, speaking of nature, I mean, this strike happened for 13 weeks in the dead of winter. I mean, can you imagine picketing in late November in New York? Answer, no, I cannot. <laughs> I live in the South <laughs> for a reason. Um, but it wasn't just... The factory workers who were striking. This was also the first time you see wealthier women joining the picket lines because they would come out and sort of protect the factory workers from police brutality because the police aren't going to beat up, you know, a well-connected wealthy woman from New Jersey, but they would have no qualms beating up a female factory worker. And Kristen, is this where we get the mink brigades? Yes. Okay, so so I want to hear about them. Okay, I'll tell you about the mink brigades, (laughs) which is my new favorite feminist history phrase. So these elite allies of these working class folks who were going on strike became known as the mink brigades because they would come down and march in the picket lines with their minks on. (laughs) A lot of them were socialites from New Jersey And the woman who kind of spearheaded their participation was a gal named Anna Morgan. She was super duper rich and she had like a $20,000 a year stipend to live on. And she just like hung out in New York and she was like, la di da, my life is really easy. Then she strikes up a friendship and possible romantic relationship with one Elizabeth Marbury, who at the time was in a quote unquote Boston marriage 
to famed interior designer and star of our Women in Interior Design podcast, Elsie DeWolf. <laughs> and this pair was very connected. They were also very progressive. And Marbury awakened Anna Morgan's social consciousness. And she was like, you know what? I have the means and resources to do something to help these other women. So she organizes these mink brigades and they march alongside the uprising of 20,000. Um, and the thing is, though, this is really where you start to see a snapshot of class divisions within the suffrage movement and early feminism because the wealthy women were not very radical. I mean, even for Europeans observing America at the time, suffragists were considered more conservative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially if you compare them to suffragettes in Britain who were uh, way more intense. And these suffragists, though, the mink brigades, were not too fond of the striking and the picketing. They really preferred to launch consumer boycotts and advocate for fair labor standards. I mean, which are to me are things that you see echoed in second wave feminism as well. Um, so there was there was some tension between these groups. And didn't those mink brigade ladies sort of start to pull back once they realized that they weren't having the same kind of sway in the way that they wanted to with a lot of these more radical women? Yeah, because, the you know, these working women, I mean, this is a group of largely, you know, politically marginalized immigrant women. It was like a cross ethnic group and. They were so fed up. They were just like, everything is at stake for them. So they didn't care about being more radical. So, yeah, they come together for a little bit, but then they would end up splintering. Hmm. The more things change, the more they stay the same in terms of those racial and class divisions in feminism. Yeah. Interesting to notice. Um, Well, so going back to that 13 week strike, though. The women were eventually successful in winning a 52-hour work week, which, I mean, I guess that's better than an 82-hour work week. Uh, they won four paid holidays and a better pay scale and union recognition. Now, the sad news is that one year later, after all of this happened, the infamous Triangle Shirtwaist Fire happened, killing 146 people most of whom were women workers and they could not escape the factory because like the doors were bolted shut to ensure that the women wouldn't walk out and strike again. Um, and stuff you missed in history class does have a whole podcast on that. In the wake of this though, the families who, you know, whose sisters, daughters, wives were killed in the fire, they were compensated $75. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, one employer was fined just $20 for for their role in the uh, fatalities. So it really seems more like it's the uprising of 20,000 and then followed by the disaster at the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire that inspires the future International Women's Days. Because meanwhile... In the Socialist Party, let's hop back to socialism. I feel like we need some like fancy transition music to go back to the Socialist Party. What's our socialist transition music? Um, <laughs> in 1910, at the Women's Conference of International Socialist Women in Copenhagen, two ladies, Rosa Luxemburg, which that's a fantastic name, by the way, sure is, and Clara Zetkin, suggest March 8th should be International Women's Day. And they should call for universal suffrage. And this was strategic on their part. Like Zetkin had a difficult relationship with feminists. She didn't really like them all that much. But like a lot of 
the platforms that she espoused, like suffrage, were kind of feminist. But the tension between feminism and socialism was that socialism at the time was more interested in uplifting like the economic rights of largely working class men versus women's rights. Correct. But also going back to the thing you said earlier about the assumption that many of the feminists and suffragists of the time, if they got the vote, would just vote along conservative lines with their husbands. There was a lot of fear around that, too. And Zetkin, though, felt and they're, they're, one of the sources that we read had a snapshot of this statement she and some other socialists put out. She basically felt like with this heavy sigh of like, we've just we've got to show them the way like we I, I don't like them. I don't like what they stand for. But women have to come together and the socialist women are the best women to show them how to do it. Well, and there was that angle of the strategy. But there was also the sort of socialist propaganda angle where they were like the party also needs to demonstrate their care for women Mm -hmm. and their interest in women. So this International Women's Day can do both of those things at the same time. And on March 19th, 1911, International Women's Day was celebrated in Austria, Denmark, Germany, and Switzerland. And they protested for voting rights, workers' rights, rights to hold public office. I mean, they were they were out en masse. And it's also this year, though, that socialist women in Boston, I believe, said that they would march with suffragists to the local suffrage hearings. It was time, you know, to band together and really show support. But a journalist covering the event noted that there were actually way more socialists than there were suffragists and noted something along the lines of like, oh, maybe maybe the socialists are actually way more passionate about this than the suffragists are. (laughs) Representation matters, ladies. Well, if we hop forward, though, to 1917 and travel back to Russia, where a podcast began, this is pretty incredible. Russian women that year observed International Women's Day for the first time, and it ended up instigating the Russian Revolution. Yeah, and Tsar Nicholas abdicating. Yeah. Okay, and this is where we get to what Chris and I have been hinting at for a minute now. For like 30 minutes now. Yeah, for 30 minutes now, I know. We've constantly been hinting at this. So uh, scholar Tim Kaplan wrote the paper on the socialist origins of International Women's Day, And she reveals how those 1857 and 1908 strikes likely never happened. Yeah. Yeah. And likely or still, they were a convenient story to steer attention away from the holiday's socialist and communist roots. Yeah. I mean, because Clara Zetkin, for instance, was close pals with Lenin, who later declared International Women's Day, a national holiday in Russia. And International Women's Day was really a communist holiday until the late 1960s. So you have it celebrated by communist China, obviously in Russia, all the other communist countries at the time. So in 1975, when the U.N. declares the year of the woman, we still have some of that Cold War angst. Mm -hmm. So... International Women's Day gets a bit of an historical makeover. And I don't know that there was someone at the UN or wherever being like, okay, <laughs> need to make up a strike. 1857. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, but, and, and Tema Kaplan 
wasn't able to cite exactly when and how the the myth of those two strikes arose because I don't know. I mean, it almost seems like pointless mythology because you have all of these other actual strikes that were happening at the time that could have easily been linked to it. Was it the degree of it all? The fact that in those alleged strikes early on, there were supposedly so many women participating in such police brutality? Like, oh, my God, look at your sisters. They were, you know, beaten by the police. Yeah. I mean, I think the police brutality angle of it was definitely a big one. And. Our research for this podcast corroborates Kaplan's claim that the strikes were made up because before we ran across her paper, I was getting so frustrated searching and searching for information, especially on that 1857 strike. And if you look up 1857 women's strike, New York City, all you'll find are articles and timelines of International Women's Day. Interesting. There's no actual like there's there's not any historic articles on the strike in the same way as you find so much information yeah. on the, you know, the Lowell girls uprising of 2000, 20,000, excuse me, and the whole Slater Mill incident. Yeah, because if there are articles from Boston journalists in 1911 covering a in in uh, comparison with the supposed 1857 strike covering a relatively small group of suffragists and socialists, if they're covering that, they sure as heck about 60 years prior would have covered a giant, massive strike of women who were then beat up by police. Yeah, I mean, and we did not do like an in-depth LexisNexis search. So who knows? There could be something buried there. I would still like further academic con- confirmation that this was the case. So listeners, if you have any intel, please let us know because all evidence points to <laughs> those two strikes being made up. Like the history of International Women's Day is apocryphal just to make it more palatable for the United States and other countries to celebrate what is essentially a, a socialist and, and communist holiday. Had the socialist ladies Ooh. leading the way. And now, I mean, now it's celebrated. International Women's Day celebrated in more than 100 countries. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's fabulous. And the thing is, finding out that those strikes might not have happened is certainly not a reason to not celebrate. If anything, I think we should celebrate it even more in recognition of this history that we just talked about. Um, and especially how it's often erased from labor history at large. And also too, to celebrate the successes achieved by the 1920s. I mean, all the striking that women were doing might not have made massive impacts in that moment, but incrementally they were building up to some pretty major reforms. Yeah. So by the 1920s, you had a bunch of state laws that were regulating hours and wages and working conditions for female employees. Uh, they secured union contracts and grievance procedures in a lot of factories and workshops. And all of the striking and agitating really paved the way for the Fair Labor Standards Act of the New Deal. Yeah. I mean, and these are the kinds of employment standards that all of us benefit from, you know, not just female employees. And for one final historical note, when FDR came to office, he appointed Francis Perkins the first female labor secretary who had been heavily involved with all of that kind of labor feminism and the factory strikes and organizing and was sort of enmeshed in that world. So 
we, we probably need to circle back and talk more about Francis Perkins at some time. Oh, totally. But it was uh, so unexpected for me, at least, to connect those dots between mm-hmm. this holiday going back to, you know, these textile mill towns that were popping up and the deplorable conditions and women immediately being like, uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. And then all, all the way to historic appointments like Francis Perkins. And I mean, just I, I I keep going back to the class differences in in how in how these battles were waged and what women felt that they had to do or could do. It's so different when you look at the women who were actually in the factories working versus the mink brigades that came down and stood with them to an extent. Yeah, I mean, because you would think that the mink brigades could wield so much more power to make things happen, but they seemed a lot more reserved and conservative and nervous. Well, you could argue that, for instance, a woman who's raking in 20K a year at that time, I mean, she's kind of part of the, however radical she might have become befriending those women, uh, she's kind of part of the establishment. Yeah. So, like, if you're raking in that much money a year, you kind of do have a stake in the status quo to an extent. Yeah, I mean, and that was just her allowance, (laughs) you know. All right, just a little drop in the bucket. So, listeners, um, happy International Women's Day. <laughs> Whether you're listening to this on March 8th or not, um, we hope that you all had as much fun listening to this history as we did learning about it and talking about it. And, yeah, if anyone has more information to give us, please let us know. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. All right. Well, we have a couple letters on babysitting for you. This one's from David. He says, great to finally be writing you. I enjoyed your episode on babysitting, but don't think you emphasized enough the role that Latina women play in babysitting white children in America. Being a first-generation Mexican-American in Southern California, I had a mother who left my sister and me with an elder cousin of ours while she worked as a babysitter for several upper-middle-class white families. The free kin-based babysitting you mentioned in your podcast was essential to this. My cousin could take care of us during the day and learn English and job training at night school to increase her job prospects back in Mexico. This gave the opportunity for my mother to leave the home and gain economic autonomy by taking advantage of the high demand of childcare in more affluent communities. But the disparity still remained in this dynamic. Parental care needed by all children was concentrated in white communities due to their economic ability to afford experienced help and could only occur with the assistance of Latin women and the familial networks they had. This dynamic leaves many underprivileged Latin children without a quality care system that perpetuates economic mobility in the future because of the insufficient development of language skills and varied interactions we received relative to foreign babysat white children. This podcast episode was especially interesting to me because as a student at UCLA, our campus's neighbors are rich celebrities and people living Beverly Hills and Bel Air. I recently used this as the base of a satirical Craigslist ad titled Mexican Male to Babysit Your White Children, where I essentially pressured and mocked my regional audience into hiring myself, a 19-year-old Mexican male, as an act of liberal social pride. I use lines like, I have no experience with childcare, will check off any diversity requirement you may have logged in your postmodern psyche with a felt pen. If requested, I could bring a picture book of the true history of the Mexican-American War, and I will work for cheap, specifically 86.1 cents on the dollar of a white female, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. 
funny enough, several people responded to my advertisement wanting to legitimately hire me. I was tempted to take a position as a sitter, but as a male, which I do not think you touched on in this podcast, I was fearful of any litigious risk associated with the perception of being a male babysitter. Anyways, thank you so much for this podcast. I started listening at the age of 13 and really feel that I've grown up with it, learning the difficulties of the female experience, learning every week the specifics of cultural, institutional, and historical suppression of women's influence and autonomy, and getting the opportunity to hear the stories behind so many great women overlooked by many history books. Really amazing work. David. Oh, David. We need we need a button or something to send him. David, this is a great letter. A, I love your sense of humor. Like, keep rocking that. But B, like, thank you so much for sharing the, the, your story. I, what is so important to, to Kristen and me is to be able to present these larger topics and then be able to hear the personal stories from you guys about how these topics are actually affecting your lives. So we really appreciate your letter. Well, I have, uh, another fantastic babysitting email from Erica. She writes, I thought I'd share a bit about my grandma's experience in the mid to late 50s. She lived in a super, super small town in Wisconsin. She's told me that instead of sending invitations, a couple getting married would just post an ad in the town newspaper, which is why she married my grandpa in Florida. So she lived in this tiny town when she was a teenager, and I doubt she was part of a babysitting union, which is probably why she only made 25 cents an hour and had to work for very long periods of time. She didn't have a very good experience babysitting, but luckily for her, she was out of there and married in Florida by the time she was 19. My experience with babysitting was luckily different. I worked for some very nice families who paid me what they wanted. I never said a fee or anything, which, to be honest, probably meant I earned more than I would have if I had said a fee. I miss babysitting and sometimes wonder if 21 would be too old to do it again or if anyone would even think of a young adult instead of a teenager. Any thoughts? Thanks for your awesome podcast. They're the highlight of my week. Erica, I know someone who regularly babysits who is in her early 30s. 21 is by no means too old to babysit. And I would imagine that people would prefer an older person coming over to take care of their kids versus a teen. So those are my two pennies. And send us your two pennies. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about the conspiratorial history of International Women's Day, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 